Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Global Politics Podcast at the end of the end of history. My name is Alex Hochuli. I'm with George Hoare and Philip Cunliffe, and collectively we are Bunga Cast. Hello, guys. Hey. Oh. So uh, we are obviously, you know, often talking about the end of the end of history, but we're going to roll back and talk about the end of history now and, and how it ended. What you're going to hear shortly is my interview with Fritz Bartel on his book, The Triumph of Broken Promises, which is a phenomenal book, in my opinion. I was asked to review it, and uh, I was initially actually perhaps not so keen um, because the title didn't entirely grab me. It seemed like a perhaps sort of idealist sort of take on or a complaint that governments broke promises. But what I actually discovered is that it is a very novel and engaging take on the end of the Cold War and the rise of neoliberalism. And it brings those together in a in a very incisive way, which is able to dialogue between the domestic and international contexts, both East and West, and to bring East and West and their experiences together. Anyway, I thought it was great. I, th- I think this comes through in the review that I wrote for American Affairs. And I'm eager to hear what uh, Phil and George have to make of it. I don't know about you guys, but you know the the history of the Cold War is interesting. Like to put it in the most kind of uh, bland term as possible, you know, as a as an important historical period. But what's important, I guess, in trying to understand how it ended and what it led to, is to understand kind of capitalist development and how we find ourselves where we are now. And I guess that's why it's what's important and makes it more than just of historical interest. Yeah, I mean, not to make it all about us and our book, but the way that we frame the end of history period is that it directly follows the Cold War period. So I think the, you know, it's got direct uh, uh, relevance to to us and the, the framework that we establish in, in our book. Um, and so I think, yeah, hearing a, hearing an expert uh, talk about how how and why it came to an end is, is um, yeah, I think uh, really looking forward to hearing the, the interview. I mean, I'm the reason I'm, I'm very interested in the book is because it's part of this um, something we've been talking about, as George suggests, you know, um, the end of neoliberalism and um, whether it's, uh, you know, whether it is actually over and what that looks like. So or at least, you know, that's the kind of the um, the moment in which the book has been launched and the it contributes to that debate. So I'm very curious to um, um, having enjoyed your review, Alex, I'm very curious to hear what the author has to say. So. Okay, great. Well, uh, you, dear listener, are going to hear me interviewing Fritz Bartel. Uh, you're going to hear, I guess, about two thirds of the one and a half hour long interview. If you want the rest of it, where we um, expand a little bit and try to look forward as well, um, trying to take the insights of the book and see what it might suggest, uh, not about the rise of neoliberalism, but its ending, as Phil has just mentioned. Um, that'll be over on our Patreon. That's at patreon.com slash bungacast. And it will also be followed by the after party where the three of us uh, discuss a little bit more deeply some of the political lessons that the book suggests. Just before you listen to the interview, I just wanted to remind listeners, if you're a regular listener and uh, are a fan of what we do, uh, please consider dropping us a review uh, wherever you listen to your podcast, whether it's on iTunes, on our Facebook page or wherever else it might be. Uh, We would greatly appreciate that. Anyway, here's the interview. This is me talking to Fritz Bartel. All right. Hello. Uh, I'm here with uh, Fritz Bartel, who's Assistant Professor of International Affairs at the Bush School of Government and Public Service at Texas A&M University. He's a member for Grand Strategy there, which sounds impressive or ominous, depending on your perspective. Um, And I'm delighted to be here with Fritz to talk about 
his book, which I had the pleasure of recently reviewing. Uh, It's The Triumph of Broken Promises, The End of the Cold War and the Rise of Neoliberalism, which uh, will be coming out very shortly from Harvard University Press, depending on when exactly you're listening to this. How's it going, Fritz? Um, I imagine you're pretty excited for the book to actually finally come out. I am. Alex, thanks so much for having me uh, on the show. And uh, I am uh, very excited to have it finally appear. Uh, very excited to hear people's thoughts on it and to have conversations like this one. So uh, looking forward to it uh, with not not too many nerves, but but uh, hopefully the appropriate amount. Not the conversation, but the book launch itself. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, no. And, um, you know, d- despite what, uh, even if you spill the beans on what's in the book in this, uh, this discussion here, people should definitely go out and buy it and read it because um, I think it will shape people's thinking in, in quite an important way about mm. about the a relatively recent past but um, whose consequences are are very much uh, felt right now I mean uh, you know the Ukraine war actually adds a certain extra piquancy to to what you depict in the book so um it's 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 amazing it's yeah well it's a great time for the book to be coming out um so before we actually get into that content uh, your book uh, for people who are completely unfamiliar with it, it it's about a relationship an intimate relationship as it turns out between the rise of neoliberalism and the end of the Cold War. And you know that it's not been studied very much. Um, and I actually, I think if you're probably to ask someone what the relationship was between neoliberalism and the end of the Cold War, you probably wouldn't get much further than people saying something like, uh, Ronald Reagan was a neoliberal president and he increased US military spending and then the Eastern Bloc wasn't able to keep up. And that was you know, the end of uh, really existing socialism. And then afterwards, you know, neoliberalism took over the globe. Um, and actually that is, in some ways, even kind of marginal to, to your narrative. So, um, it, it, we, we, which we'll get into, we'll get into in just a second. Um, but I wanted to ask uh, before that, what your intellectual background was and what turned you on to this idea of exploring uh, the linkage between these two, which, um, as you say, hasn't been studied that much. Yeah. Um, well, again, thanks very much for having me. And uh, it's, it's great to kind of talk about the origins of this project because I feel very lucky to have in many ways stumbled upon it because it was one that uh, kept on growing. I mean, it, uh, I, I really began uh, interested in uh, the fact that when the Berlin Wall came down, I, I learned as I was kind of desperately searching for a dissertation to write, which many graduate students uh, do, learned that the Eastern Bloc was $90 billion in debt to the capitalist world uh, when the Berlin Wall came down. And that just sparked a series of questions in my mind. First of all, I didn't know that that was true. I don't think, like you said, I, I don't think many, it's become more uh, well-known since I started studying this in the uh, far too long ago, early 2010s. But um, uh, why did why did that happen? You know, I was inter- why, why were capitalists lending money to communists? Why were communists borrowing from capitalists? Um, that relationship was something I really wanted to dig into. And I thought that would really be the, the, the entire project. Um, perhaps with a comment, if I could find it, on what was the ultimate effect of this debt on the events of 1989. Mm. Um, we had a, a sense uh, from some of the literature that that was that there was some marginal impact. There, there had certainly been studies that there was a, an economic kind of background force that had been played a role in the end of the Cold War, but it didn't seem to me to be very well uh, specified, and so. Uh, I started to do research on that, uh, kind of telling the history history of the revolutions of 1989 through the lens of sovereign debt. Um, When you find documents, uh, places like the IMF, with Polish officials telling people, telling the fund um, 
that the roundtable agreement of 1989 is the is their uh, is a political way to achieve their economic ends. You know that, mm. that as a historian, finding that kind of evidence is is pretty special because it it puts it right out there for you to to see. Uh, and I started to find that over and over again in these revolutions. So, so that was the the origins of the eastern side of the project, I guess, the the communist side. And as I was doing that, I then um, uh, historian Charles Mayer, uh, well known international historian of Europe, uh, I discovered had long been writing about how, uh, and he in fact in 1991 wrote an article stating that for a future history of the fall of communism. Communism and capitalism had to be told as uh, part of a shared history. Basically, mm -hmm. their history in the 70s and 80s was a shared one. And some of the crises of capitalism were also crises of communism that ultimately proved fatal to real existing, yeah. Uh, yeah. Really existing socialism. Um, he wrote a single book about East Germany, but basically that agenda of trying to tell these two um, uh, these two sets of crises of capitalism and, and communism together uh, became uh, the driving force behind behind the book, uh, and and from that that kind of conviction uh, that these two the sides of the story had to be told together that produced the revolutions of eighty nine, uh, and also produced what we now would think of as the neoliberal turn in the West. Uh, that became the kind of driving conviction for the book. So uh, in my own, in terms of my own background, I mean, I, I'm first and foremost, a, a international historian, a diplomatic historian of the, of, of kind of geopolitics. But as I lay out in the introduction to the book, I don't think particularly in this period, you get very far in the history of geopolitics without studying the kind of the domestic economic restructuring and changes in ideology, changes in politics that are happening on both sides of the Iron Curtain in the 70s and 80s. And so that's uh, that's how I started to, to try to tell this story. Yeah, no, and, and uh, the way that you're able to synthesize the kind of histories East and West, as well as the domestic and the international sphere and the kind of the simultaneous things that were going on uh, is impressive. And it's one of the things that really brings the book to life. Um, I don't want to talk too much at the beginning. I want to let you speak. So you have, uh, you know, what could be seen as a narrative that of uh, linear cause and consequence that appears very neat in my head. If I try to reconstruct, okay, what's the kind of argument that you're trying to prove of cause and consequence. And it sounds when I retell it in my own head, maybe even too neat. Um, and it mm. starts, it starts with the oil price shocks of the seventies and ends with global neoliberalism under American global hegemony. Um, mm -hmm. But this is kind of what happened and you demonstrated, I think very convincingly. So, just to set mm. us up, could you broadly talk us through the sequence of events to properly situate us among the pivotal moments and forces of your account from the early 70s to the early 90s? Yeah, and this will be a narrative challenge for myself to try to do this uh, briefly. And so I, I hope I, it comes across to your, your listeners. Basically, uh, I set up the book around a central uh, change that I believe happened uh, in the early 1970s. Uh, and, and that was this change from the race to uh, make promises, the Cold War being a race to make promises, basically the two sides, uh, communism, state socialism and capital and democratic capitalism, trying to uh, make promises to their people to expand their social contracts to provide basically a broadly uh, more equitable and 
uh, bountiful distribution of modernity's good life, is I think how I put it in the introduction. Uh, the two sides disagreed over exactly what set of promises. They were offering two different sets of promises, but they were uh, th their contest when it wasn't in the military sphere, when it wasn't in the uh, purely ideological sphere, was one about delivering a, a higher standard of living to mm. uh, the majority of their of their populations, right? And and uh, kind of the the picture, the the moment that I think encapsulate this is the so-called kitchen debate between Richard Nixon and Nikita Khrushchev uh, in 1959, uh, where they're 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 in Moscow debating basically the the merits of their two ways of life and which one can provide. Uh, more material goods. It's a consumerist vision. It's also, but it's also one bound up uh, with industrialization, providing this uh, broadly shared prosperity to their to their people, uh, in, including technological advancements and and how that will transform the lives of people living under state socialism or democratic capitalism. Um, around 1970, that. Uh, begins to change. And, and what I argue in the book and then trace throughout the whole book is, is this, it changes to a race to break promises. It changes to a, uh, it's, it's an unfortunate race. Uh, there's, there's nothing really to be celebrated about it. Um, but uh, in terms of explaining political change that, that does start to occur in the 1970s and 1980s, uh, the challenge for the two sides becomes which ones can break promises to their people, which ones can discipline their social contract. Because as I started to look at um, the major moments of political change that happened in the 70s and 80s, they often were centered around governments trying to impose, broadly speaking, policies of economic discipline, uh, a little bit more broad of a term than purely austerity, but uh, policies of economic discipline. So closing down on, on profitable enterprises, uh, imposing fiscal or monetary austerity on their uh, own people. Um, uh, it's, it could be reforming uh, trade unions, uh, instituting policies that, that bring about unemployment. Uh, there's a whole host of policies that depending on the place or the time or which system you are a part of, uh, you know, it kind of takes different forms. But I think the, the way that I tried to unite the story of democratic capitalism and state socialism is around this, this idea of a politics of breaking promises, which one could Im implement this politics of mm. breaking promises. So anyway, as I started to think about the history of the 70s and 80s through this lens of broken promises, um, that seemed to me to be the ultimate uh, kind of driving force that that pushed politics forward during this period. If we think about the policies of Ronald Reagan or Paul, Paul Volcker and Ronald Reagan in the United States, uh, obviously Margaret Thatcher in Great Britain, uh, but also including Mikhail Gorbachev in the Soviet Union and uh, the reformers uh, eventually in Poland and Hungary that instituted the roundtable democratization all of these forms of new thinking as I, so new thinking is a term usually that comes out of the Soviet uh, discourse around Gorbachev. It's usually thought of as his idealistic and his, his, his kind of group of reformers, their idealistic vision, particularly about foreign policy. Um, but when you, when you take it, take it out of that context, there's in fact new thinking of course, going on all over the place in the seventies and eighties. And my contention in the book is that this new thinking is adopted 
in East and West to meet this challenge of breaking promises. And, and the challenge arises because nation states, the, the kind of materialist under uh, foundation of all of this is that after 1973, uh, after the oil crisis, which arrives at a moment when economic growth in both East and West have slowed down, has slowed down significantly, um, the oil crisis creates two new, well, it doesn't fully create, but it, it dramatically expands two new pools of wealth, which we now know very well. Energy wealth, if you're an energy producer, you you all of a sudden, almost overnight in a matter of months, have more money than you possibly know what to do with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you are not an energy producer, or if you're, if you're a, a home for global finance, like the United States, uh, you then, you know, f- the role of finance in your economy also begins to explode or, or right. is, is accelerated dramatically. And if you're not a home for global finance or an energy producer, then you need access to finance in order to delay this process of breaking promises. So in order to delay economic adjustment to the oil, uh, to the oil price shocks and to the, to the broader inflationary crisis of the 1970s. Yeah. And so, um, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we, we live in a world which is so financialized now, it's almost hard to imagine the world, you know, pre the 1970s, um, before all the petrodollars started flowing into euro dollar markets and creating this, these whole new financial markets, which we now take for right. granted because they, they dominate so much of the economy and have seeped into right. the, the functioning of, of the real economy itself. Um, so maybe right. as a way to kind of depict this, can you maybe just run through the linking between these new economic factors and the uh, the political decisions it imposed on policymakers east and west. Yeah, so um, the oil crisis is far from the only factor that produces stagflation in the west, but it's it is certainly one that accelerates uh, that process. And then uh, governments uh, in the west are uh, broadly trying to. Uh, defer any kind of adjustment or defer adjustment to stagflation, uh, which would imply a disciplinary shock to their own people, uh, or at least to their economy, some section of their economy, um, by borrowing on international capital markets, by uh, using international capital as a way to defer the shock. Similarly, in the Eastern Bloc, the oil crisis arrives as a moment that's really fraught for the Soviet Union itself um, because it is one of the world's largest energy producers. This is then a dramatic windfall for their overall wealth. At the same time, however, they're providing that energy to uh, their satellites in the, in the Eastern Bloc at fixed prices, which then once the world price quadruples, that becomes an enormous uh, subsidy to them. And so they have to, over time, they, they have to now decide, uh, basically over overnight, just as quickly as the oil crisis arrives, um, the Eastern Bloc becomes an enormous burden, economic burden to the Soviet Union. That, that had already been true to a certain extent prior to that. There were Soviet economists that were already saying in the 60s that they were a burden, but, but it, it was no doubt true by the 70s. And so they slowly start to uh, kind of wean the rest of the block off of this energy uh, subsidy over the course of the 1970s and 1980s. 
Um, but that, uh, that, that takes quite a long time to happen. And as it's happening, this, the Eastern Bloc gov governments themselves are also turning to these Euro dollar markets uh, as a means of avoiding having to impose any kind of uh, structural adjustment or austerity policy domestically, which would m most likely come in the form of price increases uh, on basic consumer goods or um, uh, that's that's usually the policy that they were debating mm. at the time, and so so basically they're shifting what uh, they're dependent on, right? They're 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 dependent on cheap energy from the USSR, um, which you know paints a, a different picture to the one of just pure political domination because they are effectively right. you know the re those regimes are dependent on that cheap energy, and they shifted instead basically towards uh, debt. Right, and and for the historian, the the amazing part to see, and and I try to pull this out in the book. Um, if you're someone like East Germany, East German officials are are trying to get as much from the Soviet Union as they can. And so they they very clearly, they put it down, they kind of count it up. If you don't give us this amount of energy at this price, that is going to lead to exactly this amount, these extra billions in debt. And they, they go to Soviet officials and they say, look, this is exactly what's going to happen if you don't give us energy. And, and for a while it works. The Soviets are kind of, um, they, they buy into this, they give them some more energy through the late 1970s and, and into the 1980s. So in a, kind of in a pinch, you could still turn to the Soviet Union uh, to get to get out of that. Uh, but uh, but as soon as uh, that energy surplus, we could say, or, or the Soviet Union's ability to cover its allies uh, uh, extra costs diminishes, which arrives in the 1980s, they really have nowhere left to turn for their dependence besides West, uh, Western capital. And that's when things start to change dramatically, uh, beginning in Poland in the in the early 1980s. So this is a situation which gives by the early 1980s, the US an incredible amount of leverage suddenly, which it didn't have. And this is, I guess, where the narrative departs a bit from the common sense understanding that many people have, which places a lot of emphasis on simply U.S. military spending um, and the U.S. kind of outspending the USSR um, on, on military equipment, and that that was basically the story of the end of the Cold War. Um, so maybe, maybe talk us through what the mechanisms are by which the U.S. gains all this leverage, not just over the second world, but also over the third world. Right. So I, there's this enormous... Um change from 1979 to 1985. I call it the capitalist perestroika um, because in fact, Soviet officials were, uh, I found when I went to archives in Moscow, actually using the term perestroika to refer to economic change in the capitalist world before Gorbachev kind of started oh, using right. the term to refer to the, to the socialist world. And so again, it, it even in linguistically, in Russian, what's happening in, in the 1980s is perestroikas are happening all over the world, right? It's not just, of course, it's happening in the Soviet Union, but it's also happening in other places. And so I th that was one way to kind of shift our frame of reference again. But and nevertheless, once the kind of key moment for the rise of US leverage is exactly the moment at which the United States imposes this discipline on itself. Uh, so Paul Vol the Volcker shock, Paul Volcker's dramatic uh, shock to U.S. dollar interest rates beginning in 1979, but really taking off to after the presidential election of 1980, causes the largest up to that time recession in the United States uh, post-war period. It's it's completely uh, 
government cause. There is no, there's no kind of way of shifting the blame to someone else. In, in a sense, you can say it's a cause by the second oil crisis, but it's really the central bank not allowing the inflationary shock of the second oil crisis to be passed on uh, into the economy. And so, so there's nowhere, there's no mistaking who's causing this recession. It is the U.S. central bank. But that not only cuts off inflation in the United States, it also shuts down this petrodollar recycling process that had been uh, creating or allowing for this dependence of the Eastern Bloc uh, to exist. And as soon as the dollar, basically the dollar petrodollar recycling machine dries up in uh, the early 1980s, all of these countries now kind of the question is called on their economic uh, solvency, so to speak, and they have to turn somewhere to either bail get bailed out once again or turn and impose austerity on their own people. Um, they try to go to the Soviet Union. This is exactly the moment at which the Soviet Union repeals the, the so-called Brezhnev doctrine internally. So, so it says basically the cost is too high. Um, even if we, even if solidarity, the, the resistance and labor, labor union in Poland that was resisting the Polish government, even if they come to power, um, we're going to have to let that happen because mm. the costs are just too much for us. And, and it's not, uh, so and it's not bailing out uh, countries in the third world either. I mean, it's not providing maybe the kind of credit that could have been, that they might've done at an earlier phase. So this right, is really a, right. a kind it's of global a, moment, right? It's a sovereign debt crisis in the third world, the uh, IMF bailouts and conditionality, like it's all right there in this in this moment. Right, and and I think that part, particularly in, when it's in reference to the third world, is is well known that the U.S. in the 1980s gains this leverage over the third world. Um, the, what I try to draw on in my book is that that's that leverage only comes about because it also imposes discipline domestically. Um, so these two processes are, are interlinked. Um, so, so basically the United States, uh, at least the American people, the U S government is a different uh, story altogether, but the American people don't get off um, for without, without any kind of uh, disciplinary effect in the, in the early 1980s. Uh, but but it does also this process that is more well known in the third world certainly applies in the in the second world as well. And so it first comes in the form of what I call the bailouts uh, of Eastern Europe, because uh, the first thing that that the U.S. government and the IMF and the Bank of International Settlements do is provide extra liquidity to countries like Hungary and East Germany and and Pol uh, not quite Poland, but um, uh, certainly Hungary and, and East Germany. Um, and, and, and then these countries for a minute regain access to global capital markets in kind of 1983, 84, 85. Uh, there's a very interesting relationship that develops between Hungary and Japan, for instance. So, so kind of these, these links, the global financial links are, are truly global uh, at this stage. So, but so by the late Tokyo, 1980s, it's, it's Tokyo suddenly bailing out Budapest because suddenly there's this new availability of funds from, from Japan. So it, yeah, it's constantly right. shifting, it seems. Yeah, basically the the country with the surplus money, right? In the 70s, it was the the oil producers of the Middle East. It was OPEC. By the 80s, the, the surplus countries, number one above all is Japan. And so Japan is both funding U.S. federal deficits and also funding Hungarian uh, deficits, current account deficits. Um, 
because Japanese capital or and really capitalists in general, I discovered during this project, don't really care about politics one way or another. Right. Uh, even even in the Cold War, uh, when I, I guess I would have thought that they they would have had some sort of ideological aversion to uh, the communist world. It it didn't it didn't matter one way or another. It was simply about are you a good bet or not. Right. And. Uh, in the 70s, it appeared that the socialist world was the best bet that could be made, ironically, um, because they had the Soviet Union backing them up and because they had authoritarianism, which was assumed to be the system that would be able to impose adjustment if needed. It turned out, of course, in the 80s that, that, was, that the opposite was, was true. And, uh, yeah. and by 87, 88, uh, in particular, global capital has lost, loses confidence in uh, Poland and Hungary, they've, they, they're not, they can't turn to the Soviet Union. Um, and so they have to turn to the IMF, which is demanding, as it always does, uh, significant structural adjustment and, and austerity programs. And in order to gain society's acceptance for these programs, and, and this is, I was astounded to kind of find the, ev the fairly explicit evidence for this, that uh, they begin this process of roundtable democratization as a way of gaining society's acceptance of, of austerity. So can you just briefly talk us through what this roundtable democratization actually entailed? Um, and then I want to come on to the real content of broken promises. Sure. So um, uh, maybe the Polish roundtable is, is uh, easiest to um Kind of talk about so in in early 1988 um, the Polish government is trying to um, gain society's acceptance for austerity. They they offer a referendum to the country, asking uh, basically, would you be okay with economic reform if it entailed two to three years of hardship or uh, I can't remember the exact wording, but something like that. The referendum actually fails, but they go ahead and do it anyway. That's a recipe for society to. Um, push back significantly. And, uh, and, and then in, in the spring of 1988, in the summer of 1988, uh, solidarity, and really just broadly speaking, the Polish working class rise up against this austerity movement, uh, uh, these, these austerity measures. And the government by the fall of 1988 has decided that uh, if we're going to get, if we're going to gain social peace in a time of economic uh, austerity, we need to bring society's stakeholders into the government in some form. And so this, what becomes this round table negotiation because it took place around table, it includes the Catholic church, it includes uh, uh, solidarity, it includes the government. Um, it's this attempt to actually work towards re a re-legalization of, of the labor union solidarity. Um, and also to launch truly, really semi-democratic elections, uh, partially free elections in the summer of 1989. Mm. Yeah, there's yeah. a great bit um, in, in the book where you note um, also, you know, uh, taking, I think, from, from archival research that uh, Solidarity, the trade union founded in the Gdansk shipyards in 1980, that it was probably the only labor union in the world that welcomed its nation's membership in the IMF, uh, precisely because right. it saw the power that fund conditionality might have to actually change the political status quo uh, in Warsaw. I thought that I thought that's great. I think that it it 
it sheds a light on the way that these economic constraints force all these contradictions within uh, countries which are especially indebted countries. Yeah, and and at the same time they said, I don't know if I, I can't remember if I quoted exactly, but they said we we want conditionality without a substantial, without the conditions of substantial austerity, basically. We want kind of economic reform that doesn't right. involve lowering the stand, just outright lowering the standard of living. Um, that was not something the IMF was interested in, in doing. Uh, the IMF was always interested in uh, basically creating a capital outflow from the country mm-hmm. to start debt repayments, right? That, uh, but that pressure, so this is where uh, like the book doesn't have a, uh, there's no, there's no winner or, or good, good guy in this process, I guess. Right. The, but the, yeah. so the pressure to um, it, it wasn't simply pressure for economic reform. It was pressure to exact a price, an economic price that drives the political change forward right so solidarity even isn't really getting what it wants from the imf uh either the government yeah. certainly isn't getting it and solidarity isn't either but what it does produce ultimately is at least a um well what we now think of as the peaceful end of of the cold war so yeah that's so the getting- that's the ironic byproduct i guess of this process So, I mean, we're getting towards what the broken promises are and why the West was able to break promises and the East wasn't. Mm. Um, and it's, I mean, you've already detailed the way that the US was dealt some great cards to play, which wasn't necessarily the product of the genius of its policymakers or um, or necessarily of some yeah. particular benefit that the US had, but it was a kind of product of, of complex um, economic um, and kind of impersonal movements that happened, you know, um, the oil price, the oil price rise, and the creation of these um, new financial markets, and so on. So the, the U.S. suddenly had this hand to play, um, but it also was able to impose the economic discipline that you argue was necessary. That it wasn't a, a choice, um, but it was a, a, a kind of external constraint that imposed itself. And yet the East, and this is really counterintuitive. You've already uh, hinted at this. It's really counterintuitive, but these seemingly more authoritarian regimes were unable and or unwilling to impose that same sort of economic discipline, despite the um, ability to repress uh, any sort of dissent and so on, um, and and quash resistance, uh, that they were unwilling to do that. And that's I think that, I mean, that's it's such an interesting argument that's made in the book. So maybe talk us through that. Why why was uh, the West able to impose economic discipline and the East wasn't? Yeah. So I guess I'll, I'll start by saying, I don't, if I'm right about this, um, which I guess we can, we can leave open as, as a question too, and, and we'll see what, uh, what other people think, but I don't, I don't think I have the full answer or maybe the answer is a very complicated one, but the two things that I point to in the book are uh democracy as a as a way to legit so basically their governments having the legitimacy provided by democratic elections uh, that allows their people to trust 
the government that in some way what it, what is happening to them is necessary, whether or not it actually is, right? But mm-hmm. but when a government turns to its people and says, rather than this kind of under the race to make promises, this thing that had started the Cold War, when when you when your government is promising and then actually providing a a better life and a higher standard of living and a sense of the that the future will be better. Um, it maybe is a little bit easier to trust or, or perhaps trust and legitimacy don't really matter under those circumstances. And in fact, late socialism, as it was called, right, relied on this basic trade-off of, of providing a, a, a incremental increase in the standard of living in exchange for kind of politically opting out or not, not, uh, uh not not challenging the political system that was the basis of the of the late socialist uh, social contract in the west this democratic legitimacy does provide uh governments with this with this ability to to gain social trust and again this was not something that i it's not even an argument i make directly but i actually see it in the evidence coming from the east so so i detail the diaries of this this uh, Polish policymaker, Mieczysław Rakowski, uh, who sees as soon as solidarity starts to, so in a sense, the first democratically elected government in uh, since the Second World War for Poland, or since the start of the Cold War, um, he says, our society pa- kind of patiently uh, uh, takes on hyperinflation and doesn't react negatively uh, precisely because it's our government he says right that people think that it's our government and this sense that that um if as long as it's your government that is doing something to you uh again i i'm, I'm making it based on the evidence that i saw I, I i don't even necessarily i don't have like an internal conviction that this is true but it seemed to be true for people at the time that that was a very important element of of the, the conditions under which mm. austerity or economic discipline was was imposed, and so that, that, that was at least a perspective. Yeah, at least from the perspective of the policymakers themselves, that they felt that they could impose discipline and get away with it, um, even because I think that because it's another it's a whole it's another claim entirely whether democracy actually gave um, re- regimes a, a level of trust to impose that discipline, because of course there was resistance to neoliberalism um, in Britain. And in the, I mean, you talk about the miners strike, for example, um, right. which is a really pivotal moment. Maybe we'll come to talk a little bit about that in, in a bit. Yeah. Um, but, but as, as you say, I think it, it, it's the claim at least is legitimate insofar as it's, this is what people were thinking. This is what policymakers thought the, in the East, as you detail, they were scared of imposing economic discipline because of what it might mean for their own legitimacy. Whereas in the West, there was some prevarication, right? Um, they weren't, they, it, and it and it took some kind of re- reasonably exceptional political figures in the form of Thatcher. I mean, I'm not <laughs> regular listeners will be surprised to hear me talk up Thatcher, but I guess there is a, a sort of grudging respect for her capacity to do what was seen as politically impossible at the time, and and take on the unions in a head-on collision rather than mm-hmm. um, seek to find a negotiated settlement, which had been the ways of policymaking throughout the 1970s up to that point. Um, and I, one way that you depict this, and maybe this is a good way to kind of talk a little bit more about these broken promises and why 
why, you know, in the West they were able to, and in the East they felt they were unable to, uh, is this comparison that you make precisely between uh, Mieczysław uh, Rakowski, uh, who was a you know a economist and advisor in Poland, and Thatcher's advisor John Hoskins, um, because I think that I think that really brings it to life about what policymakers were thinking at the time and what they felt they could kind of get away with and what techniques of government they would need to be able to impose this economic discipline, which in the East they felt they wanted to or they would have to because they couldn't rely on ever-increasing debt forever. Um, eventually those bills would, would have to be paid, um, but that they they had to find some means of, of, of going about it and, and uh, new liberal governments in the West found it and in the East they didn't. So maybe talk us through a little bit that yeah. comparison between those advisors. Sure, absolutely. Um... So uh, this man Murkowski, he ends up he's he's seen as kind of a, a Polish uh, liberal in the sense of a, a kind of not he's part of the communist establishment, but he's not a, a central member of the of the party, and um, uh, he's he he begins to see in the late 1970s that clearly the economy is not going well, uh, and that. There is a moment approaching at which the government or the party will need to uh, institute some sort of economic reform that he believes will require many years, a number of years of uh, poor economic performance as the as it's kind of as it's kind of re as the as the economy is is reset, and he senses already in the late 1970s that the government does not have the tr- uh, the trust, basically the social trust. Uh, of the people in order to do this. And so he, he starts to advocate for what he calls co-responsibility, uh, basically bringing the Catholic Church and labor unions, uh, this is before the emergence of solidarity, labor unions, uh, so the, gov- the party-sponsored labor unions, uh, more into the governing process as a way of building the social trust. Uh, at the same time, on the other side of the Iron Curtain, this man, John Hoskins, uh, is working out of government at this time on basically the blueprint of the of the Thatcher revolution, uh, and he is is feels that he needs obviously the the Thatcher government once it's in power will need to convince people uh, that a dramatic change in how Britain is governed is necessary, and that events which so he calls it events led communication. Uh, basically letting strikes happen and having them communicate a message to the British people will be uh, ultimately successful in changing their opinions of trade unions, giving at least tacit acceptance to uh, tacit support to Thatcher uh, herself and uh, allow an economic transformation to occur. So we have these two visions of economic transformation and what will be required on both sides of the Iron Curtain. Um, Rakowski ends up in government uh, after solidarity emerges. Uh, he tries to make this vision of co-responsibility uh, a, a reality with solidarity. And over time, it just becomes clear in basically over the course of what is called the Polish crisis uh, that the two sides can't agree on any form of, pol- of shared political control. Basically, solidarity wants ever more political control over things like the distribution of food in Poland uh, over the course of economic reform. And, uh, 
and he, Rokovsky, and the government in general, the party are not willing to give up uh, any real political power to make this happen. So this, this vision of co-responsibility is not really a, any kind of real vision for shared power. It's really more of, of uh, would be a way of kind of co-opting social forces into the governing vision. Uh, after it becomes clear to both sides that there is no future for sharing power, uh, the only turn, so I, I, at the end of the chapter, I use Thatcher's infamous phrase of defeating the enemy within. Right? If you think about Britain and Poland in the early 1980s, uh, as I write, uh, Wojciech Jaruzelski, the military leader of Poland, could not have imagined a better term for solidarity than the enemy within. Um, and he defeats his enemy within through martial law. Uh, Thatcher defeats what she calls the enemy within in the British miners' strike um, with what is viewed as just much as, as more legitimate force. And so I, I cite some uh, polling numbers from, from this period where Thatcher herself has an approval rating of something like 45%. Um, but the, the British police, the kind of state, the, the enforcement arm of the state has an approval rating of 91%. Um, if you were in, if you were in Poland at the time, I, I couldn't find at least, perhaps it exists, some sort of uh, approval ratings of the uh, Polish security services. I, I don't think they would be uh, 91%. And so uh, so I think this is where the, the idea of legitimacy and, and how, uh, whether or not the two sides have legitimacy um, pr pr proves decisive in which ones are able to impose economic discipline without fully uh, leading to a, a collapse or a breakdown of the governing regime. Yeah. Yeah. And in relation to that, there's a great moment that you describe, or at least, you know, a recount um, what was written in, in diaries, that the first post-communist prime minister in Poland uh, was then swiftly able to impose all sorts of economic discipline. And then you have Rakowski looking back, Rakowski looking at that and going kind of, God damn it, we were, <laughs> you know, if this had been us, we would have we would have been slaughtered for this. Like there would have been so much resistance. And now um, in this, you know, new capitalist regime where they're able to get away with it. And it does, and it's striking. Again, it, it underlines the point that you make throughout the book that, democracies were able to impose this sort of discipline um, in the way that the yeah. authoritarian state socialism wasn't. Uh, and it's a point that's also made up, I think, in, in reference to, to regimes in the third world as well, that many of the ones who imposed uh, austerity in the 1980s uh, were were um, were democracies um, by that point. I mean, I'm familiar with Brazil and, you know, that was definitely the case in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. Um, and I guess it makes something like the Pinochet coup in Chile stand out perhaps maybe even as an exception, um, oddly, because we, we tend to think of that as the beginning of neoliberalism. And no doubt, um, even under democratic forms, the imposition of neoliberal austerity and economic discipline is done with a lot of repression, undoubtedly. But they're somehow right. very often able to get away with it, at least for, for a while, um, in, in a way that even the kind of uh, capitalist dictatorial regimes, like the like the military dictatorships in in, um, in in Latin America, weren't able to do or weren't willing to do. And I wonder. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I wonder if. So I guess my question is whether that's purely a facet of the type of regime that it was that uh, dictate. Dic, you know, these dictatorships weren't willing to do that. 
um, or if it was more just a a kind of coincidence of of timing that there was still strong growth in the 60s and 70s when there were these dictatorial regimes in place and then by the certainly by the later 80s there's a democratic transition going on everywhere and that they then impose economic discipline because it's necessary the, the kind of growth is no longer the growth engine's no longer there yeah you know um and actually this is something i'm, I'm hoping to work on in the future kind of what to the extent to which these dynamics of this pressure for economic discipline driving what is called the third wave of democratization, uh, the, how, how much they are, are related. Um, I think there is certainly a, one element of it is just an anti-incumbent or, or the whoever's in power at the time during this, this long period in the seventies of delaying adjustment. And when that, mm. when that period ends, uh, Whoever is in power, if it's Jimmy Carter in the United States or James Callahan in, in uh, the UK, there, there are changes in government. And one of the things that democracies were able to do uh, is change the who was in power and, and at least have people believe if you were, you know, if you were in the Soviet Union, you didn't think there was much difference between Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan. But if you were in the United States, I think you did, and historians tend to treat those that that as a major departure in U.S. history, without declaring it kind of the full-blown collapse of the governing uh, system itself, like we would like we saw at the end of the 1980s in the Eastern Bloc. And so, the other thing that capital that uh, democracy, electoral democracy, at least allows capitalist societies to do is to change their governing ideology uh, to a certain degree, at least without, uh, without while, while maintaining kind of full regime continuity, uh, if you like. And so uh, they, they, they can be more flexible, uh, at least they could, they could at that time be more flexible. Um, uh, what, whereas as soon as Gorbachev tried to change the governing ideology in the Soviet Union and across the Eastern Bloc, it very, very quickly uh, kind of collapsed in on itself. Right. Um, and I mean, in this narrative, uh, obviously, it can be read in a deterministic manner, but I think you're very careful in the way that you put this together in terms of mm -hmm. laying out what these real material constraints are. But you know, your account doesn't do away with agency and contingency. It shows that, you know, choices were still available to actors, but, you know, within often straightened circumstances. Um, and so they could sometimes uh, delay or, you know, extend and pretend as it's called <laughs> in our times with regard to, to kind of the, you know, Euro crisis and whatever, or what Wolfgang Strick mm -hmm. is called buying time, kicking the can down the right. road and so on, all these, right. all these sort of metaphors. Um, but ultimately kind of, you know, reality comes knocking. Um, and, I guess you, in, in that element of, you know, a contingency and agency, you dip your toe into counterfactuals, right? So basically to put it, to put it bluntly, it's could it have been otherwise, right? W was there some other solution in the East, which wouldn't have led to the, you know, complete collapse of those regimes? Um, and indeed, probably in the West, was there a, a different solution, which didn't, require the same imposition of economic discipline, you know, whether some negotiated solution could have been found out for, uh, you know, whatever. Um, mm -hmm. the, the narrative that you tell suggests that and prompts those questions of counterfactuals. And you kind of, 
you hinted them in the book, but it, kind of without yeah. necessarily exploring them fully. So maybe this might, might be an opportunity just to round out this uh, this section here to maybe uh, speculate a little bit about what you know what other avenues might have been possible and when you know perhaps not by 1986, but perhaps in 1978 or so on. Yeah. Uh... Well, I think it's a, since you and you you rightly raised it in your review, and I will say, hopefully, your listeners have gone out and read it, and they should re- read it. Uh, it's shorter than my book, so uh, go out and read <laughs> oh, it. Oh, but they should read the whole uh, narrative. They should read the whole thing. They can read my book. Yeah. No. Well, I I think you're you're absolutely right to to raise this question, and um, I as the person who kind of wrote this seemingly or. Uh, treading towards deterministic narrative. I don't know that I'm the best one to, to think through alternatives. A couple of that that obviously present themselves. Um, I think the combination of Volcker and Reagan uh, was an enormously detrimental, to say the least. Uh, but, but their combination, they often, I think, in neoliberal accounts go together. But there's no reason that they had to. And in, and in fact, they almost didn't, right? So Volcker mm. himself is is trying to, I mean, he's appointed by Jimmy Carter. He's trying to not interfere in the uh, 1980 presidential election by tanking the economy before the election. Um, I don't think he, I, I could, there's probably an empirical answer to this question, but I don't think he had any preference at least before 1980 for Ronald Reagan. And certainly after his election and after the tax cuts are passed, um, there's, this is an. This creates this double whammy, to use a non-technical term, of these extremely high interest rates and these enormous budget deficits in the United States, which creates a, an enormous sucking motion for global capital. Right. Every, all of a sudden, capital is flowing into the United States at rates that were just basically thought to be uh, impossible a, a few short years earlier. And what this effect has, the effect that this has is uh, to shut down the or to create these moments of leverage in the second and third world that I don't think would have been as severe. So do you get a sovereign debt crisis, or at least at the scale that it happened, if you don't have both Volcker and Reagan's policies mm. at the same time? I don't think you, I don't think you do. Um, and so if there was a more measured uh People debate even if Vol- what Volcker did was in any way uh, necessary in the United States, or if so, if he kind of adopts a more gradual approach, if there is no uh, enormous tax cut program for the wealthy in the United States, that would have global effects uh, out far beyond the U.S. borders, and so, and I think you'd have a very different history of the 1980s. Um, Another enormous one, uh, which we'll face uh, no doubt in the coming 2020s, is is the prospect of, of global debt relief in the 1980s. So there were lots of uh, calls for global debt relief uh, kind of ways out of the uh, sovereign debt crisis of the 1980s that didn't involve continued structural adjustment and austerity programs uh, in the third world and the second world. And the extent to which with Reagan in power and even just with the U.S. Treasury and uh, German uh, government kind of controlling the IMF, the extent to which those were uh, plausible um, 
given the relations of power at the time? I, I don't know. I think we'll, I think that's still kind of an, a question open for research. Um, but had that come to pass, had there been a significant uh, form of debt relief in the 1980s, that would have had dramatic impacts, uh, almost certainly, obviously, uh, much more humane impacts for people around the world. But also, uh, you likely would have had a much longer Cold War, right? Because yeah. the, the kind of leverage that I uh, lay out in my book would have disappeared. And in fact, the the Polish government in the 1980s is is counting on this happening. They're they're hoping that they can buy enough time um, for a kind of global debt relief package to to take shape, and it it just doesn't do that. So so those two moments stand out to me uh, as ones where where history could have gone uh, a different direction, um, and and hopefully my book will lead to to more productive thought on on those questions. Excellent. No, very good stuff. Um, I, I think it's interesting that, you know, despite that, and, and despite the fact that, you, you know, you are explicit that it's not a triumphalist narrative that you want to, to present, but it's, I think, a very realist one, and it's, it's commendable for that. Um, there's nevertheless a kind of, if I can put it this way, a sort of Leninist almost an admiration for the ability to take hard decisions uh, and to do the politically impossible, which is something that I guess Volker and Thatcher particularly stand out um, for having done without necessarily endorsing those decisions, I think. Um, anyway, hmm. so we're, we're, that's the end of this, uh, the free section of this. Um, we're going to continue on and have a more open discussion, I guess, about our times in which so much seems politically impossible, in which promises have been broken hmm. and in which promises are no longer made. Um, but that'll be all over uh, on Patreon at patreon.com slash BungaCast. And that's it for the free show. But let me thank you already in, in this intermediary break. And then uh, we'll continue. Thank you.